cliffcentral.com. Well, our, our guest is someone who I've been really, really excited to talk about. Um, a, a reference from a friend and somebody who, um, on his own merits, is just the most incredible man. Uh, he is Conor McGregor's coach's coach. He's also one of the first American jiu-jitsu black belts. He's incredibly knowledgeable about social, cultural, and personal issues that relate to violence. And the book, which is called uh, The Gift of Violence, is bound to be provocative. We'll talk a little bit about that in a short while. It's been blurbed by Michael Shermer, uh, Rickson Gracie. He will be on Sam Harris's podcast around the time of the book's release. And I'm delighted that we are going to get to speak to him today. His name is... Uh, is, is Matt, uh, Thornton and Matt Thornton is on the line. He's live from, uh, you're in, you're in Oregon, are you not? Yeah. Portland, Oregon. Oregon. Well, Matt, I, I've got to tell you this, this, the name of your book is hugely provocative, but before we get into any of that, because you know, they're going to be feminists screaming and shouting. They're going to be people accusing you of being a uh, toxic male and all of that stuff. And yeah. we'll get into those issues in a minute. Yeah. But right up front, uh, I mean, I gave the most basic and, and, really um unfair introduction to someone whose whose life is full of incredible achievements and i'm i'm just delighted to to have you here and 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 i'd love you to just describe for everybody what kind of a life you've had up to now and some of the things that you've got up to um before the writing of this book we can talk about the book in a second but okay. um you know tell us a bit about you yeah well i appreciate you having me on um thank you i've been involved in martial arts for all my life for whatever reason um i was kind of fascinated always by, ever since I've known of the existence of martial arts, I was kind of fascinated by the question, what works and what doesn't in a martial arts context. And so um, after I um, left the army in the very early 90s, I took up boxing and kickboxing at an art called Jeet Kune Do, which was Bruce Lee's kind of training method and philosophy. And I started teaching that. I moved out to Portland, Oregon, where I where I live now with my kids and my family. And became a bit disillusioned with kind of their teaching methods and what I saw some hypocrisy and, and basically things that don't work broke off to open up my own school after I met Hicks and Gracie, who, when I saw Brazilian jiu-jitsu and kind of fell in love with it, I started teaching at a small school thinking I would never make any money at it because everybody told me that people don't want to sweat and train the way I wanted to train. Um, I thought that was true. Turned out it was wrong. There's a whole bunch of people that wanted to do what I do. And then I came out with a, a video set back in the day of VHS called Aliveness. And that was wow. where I, I, I explained what works and what doesn't work and why. And that became very popular. And people from all over the world, including South Africa, where we have a gym in uh, Cape Town, saw it and connected with me and those relationships, which was about 30 years ago, the, those formed the organization, which we call SBG. And, and as you mentioned, we have, you know, our gym in Ireland and the UK and South Africa and around the world. And so basically for the last 25 years, I've been teaching here in Portland and then traveling around the world to the different locations to give seminars. And then I began the process of writing the book you mentioned about, honestly, probably about eight years ago. Um, but yeah, that's, that's how I've lived my life. I've done nothing but teach martial arts for 30 years now. Uh, during your time in the army, you were obviously deployed. Um, where did you see active service? I was in Berlin. I was in, in a period where there was no, um, war. So I was in after, let's see, I was in after Grenada and I came out shortly before Panama. 
Um, so my service was in uh, actually Berlin, which in and of itself was kind of interesting because I was there when the wall was up. So I could mm-hmm. see, you know, travel, literally walk through Checkpoint Charlie and see what communism looked like and come back. And it was a good experience for 18-year-old boy. Oh, I'm sure. And, and helps you to figure out very quickly what the differences between capitalism and communism are and why traffic only ever goes one way, right? Exactly. Yeah, the wall wasn't there to keep people from going into East Germany, that's for sure. Yeah, it was, you know, it's, it, it must have been the most fascinating time to actually watch history unfold before your eyes. And there are a few things that I think people could talk about in the, in the 20th century that are as, as phenomenal in, in terms of a, an ideological battle being won or lost. And really, the stakes were high. Um, that wall coming down was, was hugely symbolic, but also for the people who were actually involved, uh, a tremendously emotional and, and very real experience. And for you to have actually been there to see that, I'm sure it, it you know, gave you pause for thought and probably helped you to tell people a story, which oh, um, sure. I'm afraid kids these days just don't seem, I sound like an old man, but you know, they don't seem to be able to grasp why these ideologies are not equally good or bad uh, right. and why some, some are worse than others. Right. It was a, a gift for me to be able to see it in practice, see what it actually looked like. So definitely changed my opinion on things. So, Matt, I mean, you live in one of the most liberal cities in the United States. You uh, you obviously are aware of the of the culture wars that are going on at the moment. The fact that it has become a very difficult thing for men to even figure out what their identity as 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 males actually means, yeah, um, and where where they should be using their biological, genetic, and instinctive gifts. To the best of their abilities uh, in a world where it seems like uh, some of those gifts are being not only disregarded, but being openly dismissed as harmful, dangerous, toxic. Um, as, as a guy who's really lived a life of, of, of incredible variety uh, of, of violence, obviously, of seeing what violence when it's controlled can do, uh, this must be also quite irritating to you um, to, to see this kind of ignorance pervading. Yeah, unfortunately, I've had a front row seat to the the net result of progressive policies here in Portland. So, you know, maybe 10 years ago, I would have gladly walked downtown Portland with my wife at three in the morning, not have thought a thing about it. There was police everywhere. It was a very safe, beautiful, clean city. And since it started a little bit beforehand, but it really took off in earnest after the death of George Floyd, that's all changed. And so, you know, we had the, our homicide rate tripled. We had almost, I think we had 97 murders last year, which is double anything that Portland has seen in the past. We have more than 700 homeless camps, but they're actually just drug camps, basically all over the city. Our police is maybe a third of what they should be. Um, the first thing that happens when you start cutting those budgets like they did in Portland is the training goes away because the training budget is something that gets cut right away. And plus, when they're so understaffed, they don't have the manpower to be able to take somebody off the street to give them more training. So the net result or the um, the positive thing that you would want to have happen, one of the solutions to what people saw with the George Floyd circumstance was is more training, training for police officers to be able to deal physically with some of these uh suspects 
And that's the first thing to go. So every single thing that they've tried to implement from eliminating the game violence response team, which caused shootings to triple, um, to taking away the training has made everything worse. Everything, And it's not just in Portland. It's around the United States, but Portland is kind of the flagship for for all this stuff. And so it's been it's been sad to see. Now, I think a lot of people want us to get straight into the book, and, and really that's the reason that you're doing these interviews at the moment. Uh, it, it's, it seems to me to be the kind of book that I think many, many people here in South Africa, too, you talk about problems with violence in America, but South Africa is a very violent country. We have the highest rape statistics in the world. Uh, we also have a, a huge problem with murder, with theft, with robbery, with, with you know grievous bodily assault, that kind of thing. So I think this book may be more interesting here than than you may even realize it isn't just for men, obviously. No. I think this book, is, this book is tremendously helpful and useful. And the little bit I've gleaned uh, without having an advanced copy is, is precisely filling a gap, which it seems that so many people are either ignoring completely or that they cannot fill themselves. So just explain where the, the idea for this book came from and, and precisely how you put it all together, because that's also an interesting process. Sure. I had, you know, I've been teaching, like I said, for 30 years. And although we have champion MMA fighters, jujitsu athletes and things like that, like you mentioned, 97% of our clientele around the world are just everyday people, men and women and children um, who want to learn self-defense. The number one reason people sign up at our locations, we interview them beforehand and talk to them is always self-defense. And sometimes that comes from a past of abuse or encounters being a victim of violence. And so what I wanted to do is put together one source where I could take everything I've learned over 30 years and give it to these people who I think deserve an answer and a solution. And that's really what the book is about. Um, and, you know, what greater gift is there than the gift to be free from exploitation by physical means? And you hinted on something a couple times now, which is really important is that I think anybody that looks at the data, not just in the United States, but worldwide, if you're talking about violence of individuals versus individuals, which is the kind of violence I'm talking about, I'm not talking about warfare or terrorism, but individuals against individuals, which every year is around four times as many deaths as all the wars combined that year. Some people don't realize. Um, but if you look at that, the data on that kind of violence and you don't draw the conclusion that at the heart of that kind of problematic violence is exists issues related to maturity, then I don't think you've understood the data. And what I mean by that is if we look at the number one perpetrator of those crimes, we're going to be talking about a young male between the ages of 15 and 22, 23, and then it just starts to drop off dramatically from fatherless homes. And one of the right. stories I talk about is actually from South Africa uh, 20 years ago or so. I was in Pelansburg and we were driving around and they had found rhinos that had been mutilated and killed. And they quickly found out that it was elephants that were killing them and they couldn't figure out why it happened. And then, you know, eventually they realized that they had moved a bunch of elephants from uh, Kruger, I think, but the straps on the helicopter weren't heavy enough to carry the big bulls. So they had brought uh, the females and they brought a bunch of young teenage male elephants to Pelansburg, but they hadn't, put the right amount of bulls in that. And what happened very quickly is those elephants gathered together, those young male elephants gathered together, and they started to hunt down, torture, and murder other animals. And the only solution that they had was to bring those bulls in. And as soon as they brought those bulls back into the population, the problem ceased. And so 
you know, part of my book is the main thrust of my book is solutions, practical solutions for people who don't want to become a victim of violence or who were a victim of violence in the past, how to avoid it, how, how to deal with it, how to manage it. But another part is kind of telling this, the story of why violence happens. And although the book is not a public policy book, I think anybody that reads it will see that if we really want to have long-term solutions for violence, we have to start talking about families. We have to start talking about fatherless homes. We have to start talking about mentor mentorship and how important it is for young males to have healthy, mature, older males helping them grow up. Because if you don't have that, they basically raise each other in a kind of a Lord of the Flies situation. And you get what we're seeing here in Portland and you get what we're seeing in Chicago and you get what we're seeing all over the world. You get a lot of, a lot of violence. You know, uh, some of the, 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 the philosophies that have been introduced into this discussion to try and assuage the problem of these role modelless young men and, and their descent into, into violence and, and, you know, a lack of self-control and acting out and all of that stuff. The, the, the solutions that have been provided by some have clearly not borne any fruit. You know, there are plenty of uh, single mothers who are trying their damnedest. Mm-hmm. But without those male role models, it just it doesn't matter how hard they work. And, and I'm by no means discounting how hard so many mothers work and how often it isn't their fault that there isn't a father in the house. Right. In fact, most of the time it isn't. But these young men are not going to become better citizens by being feminized and they're not going to become better citizens and they're not going to become happier people by being locked up or by being reprimanded for being men. Right. You need to channel and harness that aggressive energy and that innate maleness mm-hmm. into something useful. And yeah. when men do that and they can see older men showing them how, because we learn, you know, we learn like monkeys really by observing when you can do that, the results are instantaneous. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, the, the argument that people bring up sometimes when, when I have these conversations or I hear them take place in the public square is that in some way, shape, or form, we're denigrating single mothers. And it's actually backwards because what I'm saying is it is difficult. It's difficult to raise kids. It's difficult to raise young males. It's a hard job. There's a lot of single mothers uh, and, that are doing fantastic and they're doing a great job. And by talking about how difficult it is to raise young men and the need for strong male role models in their life, I'm not denigrating um, what single mothers do. I'm actually complimenting it. It's, it is a really impressive thing. Um, But long-term solutions, we need to have more fathers in the home. And if you don't have fathers in the home, you're going to have to make up for that with police officers. Otherwise you're just going to have mass violence. And like you mentioned, you know, we have, within us. So another part of, I talk about in the book, but innate, I call primal instincts, because as you know, every single one of your ancestors and every single one of my ancestors uh, live long enough to procreate in an unbroken chain of success. And that part of their ability to do that was their ability to navigate predators and or use violence when it was appropriate. And all of us have within us those primal instincts, which can manifest in a very negative way if they're not given an outlet. So having fathers in the home really helps that. Combat sports really helps that. Giving young men a place where they can go and use that um, energy in a positive way is super important. 
So the, the title, The Gift of Violence, I mentioned at the beginning is provocative and for the reasons already discussed, and maybe you want to add something to that. But the byline is practical knowledge for surviving and thriving in a dangerous world. And this is stuff that unless you've had training and unless you've you've gone to an academy or you've, you've learned a martial arts skill or you've trained at, at one of these specialist gyms, this is stuff that isn't readily available and certainly can't be learned only from a book. So, you know, when you put this together, you obviously had to explain a few things, but you also had to quite probably tell people that a lot of this they're going to have to discover on their own. Or am I wrong? No, you're correct. So one of the arguments that has been put forward to me over the 30 years that happened that I've heard over and over again from, especially from people who teach fantasy-based martial arts, and I think people who aren't familiar with the martial arts world might not know, but the vast majority of martial arts don't work. You know, it's make-believe, Aikido, Kung Fu. I mean, they don't work. The martial arts that do work, the ones that'll work in a fight, all have one thing in common, and that's the fact that they're also combat sports. So if you look at what's used in the UFC, for example, you're going to have boxing, kickboxing, wrestling, and then, you know, some type of judo or Brazilian jiu-jitsu, some type of grappling on the ground. And the reason why those arts work is because they have an opponent process, which I call aliveness, and so they, you, you gain actual timing and you, you get to, to work the material, um, in a practical way is something that fantasy based martial arts don't have. Now, I think a lot of people have realized that, especially since the advent of the UFC, especially young people who pay attention. It's a little harder to sell them the hocus pocus nonsense of martial arts these days than it was, say, 20 years ago. But yeah. one of the things that the people who, the hucksters who teach those martial arts will say is, well, yeah, but you guys are sports guys, and what we do is for the street. And they'll throw out there that we're not teaching people all the other things that are involved and uh, lead up to physical conflict. And so that was one of the other reasons that I wrote this book. Long before any encounter with a violent predator becomes physical, there's going to be this long chain of events, whether people realize it or not, where their instincts you know, the, the hairs on the back of their neck stand up, their instincts are going off. There's certain things that you can notice and look for. And of course, we want to avoid it ever becoming physical. So the vast majority of the book, the first 90% of the book, I talk about everything like that, that leads up to the physical. And then at the end of the book, I have a chapter on aliveness so people can differentiate between functional martial arts and fake martial arts, where I encourage everybody to take up some kind of combat sport. And I'm partial to Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu just because I love it and been doing it for 30 years. But honestly, if Judo, boxing, whatever, just that kind of physical combat sport, not only is that a healthy outlet for young men, but for everybody else, it will give them the tools, the, uh, the motor skills in stand-up, clinch, and ground to be able to defend themselves against a violent attacker. And so part of the book is at the end is, a, is encouraging everybody, no matter – their age, no matter the gender, to take up some form of combat sports. And I think it's a healthy thing for people to do. And there's that part of what you're talking about can only be learned in the doing of the sport, the pushing, the pulling, right. knowing what it's like to have somebody who's aggressive and, and with bad intentions try and physically handle you um, can only come as a result of that kind of training. But up to that point, there's a long chain of events that I want people to be able to recognize. And then also the other thing I noticed, not to be too long-winded here, but when I read everything that was on the market 
that I could get my hands on before I wrote the book. More often than not, when self-defense instructors talk about um, violence, they're talking about violent criminal actors. In other words, strangers, the, the stranger that breaks down your door that, you know, you meet in a dark alley. And that's important. And I talk about that too in the book, but the vast majority of violence, whether we're talking about homicides or assaults or rapes, occurs by people you know, people yeah. even that you let in your house. And so being able to recognize what I, I call them character disordered people um, before it becomes violent is also very important. And so I wanted to, you know, a, a good portion of my book deals with that as well. Yeah, that's such a valuable understanding. And, and it's something I only realized a short while ago. And when you look at the, at the actual criminal statistics, you can see very clearly that most rape victims know who their rapist is before the rape and that kind of thing. You know, you know that uh, most of the, uh, the, 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 the physical altercations between men happen between men who do know each other. They're not strangers who just walk up to each other in the street and start fighting. 100%. But it's also interesting. I mean, you make such a, a good point here, and I'd like you to just embellish this a little for us. Because if anything, your book to me seems to, to, to indicate that good people can become more dangerous to bad people. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this is, again, to the, the point that, that so many people just want to get rid of violence as if that's a possibility. It's not possible. Um, violence will always be a part of society, especially in the places where we least want it, inner cities, fatherless homes, gangs. These kinds of things are a reality in your country and in mine especially. But violence in and of itself can be used for good or for bad. Mm-hmm. And humans seem to, to have forgotten this very important axiom but also that for good people to be able to do this stuff and to make themselves dangerous does not mean that they're becoming bad people. No, that's 100% true. So the saying that I actually took from one of, our, one of my black belts in the organization, Paul Sharp, is part of the mission statement for SBG is to make good people more dangerous to bad people. And I love that sentence because that is, when it becomes physical, that is the solution. You know, the first sentence in my book, which is very in, intentionally put there, is violence is natural. Violence is natural. It's adaptive. It's with us. It's always been with us. It's not going to go away. And when you're dealing with somebody who's intent on physical violence, the only thing that's going to stop that person is the threat of violence or physical violence itself. Full stop. There is a time and place where the only solution to the problem that you're dealing with at that moment is violence. And so... One of the things that happens because violence is so innate uh, in our being uh, that like, for example, sex, it tends to get polarized and you'll have people who will glamorize it or make a fetish of it. And then on the other ex- end of the extreme, you'll have people, the pacifists who will demonize violence. And the, one of the points in my book is, look, violence is natural. Um, whether you like it or not, every one of us as human beings is going to have to establish a relationship to that topic. And I want you to have a relationship that's that's um, not polarized, that, that's not making a fetish of it and glamorizing it, and that's not demonizing it, and instead be able to see it for what it actually is. And, um, yeah, the more good people we make uh, who are dangerous to bad people, the better our society as a whole will be. And the positive thing about some of that, is part of why that happened is because long-term trends, real long-term, right now we're in a spike, but long-term trends, violence has been decreasing. Pretty much any generation that you and I go back, if we go back 100 years, 200 years, 300 years, the further back you go, pretty much the worse it got. 
And so yeah. part of it is, is just the effect of privilege. And there's a lot of people who maybe don't ever encounter violence for most of their life. And it's, it's such a foreign thing to them. And I don't think that's healthy either. So I want them to have a, a solid relationship with the topic before all of a sudden it's thrust on them in a negative way. And they have no idea how to even handle or process the situation before, during, or after. Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of a, a sick and perverse thing that the people who make the rules in our society and the people who supposedly lead society in academia and, you know, in the schools and in, um, you know, in, in, in kind of rich neighborhoods, these people are the ones who encounter violence the least. And the people at the bottom of the pyramid, the people who are socioeconomically deprived, and find themselves the victims of this kind of thing more often than not, and who have an understanding of violence being natural, are very seldom the ones who make the rules. And, yeah, you know, the media, the me media is filled with, with a, either a, a kind of fantasy version of this stuff where you, you know, you can have superpowers and be able to, and you see these in movies, you know, these people who have this incredible ability to fight off 20 people at once. It's just right. not realistic. And they have clearly got no idea of how violence really works. And if it's not that, then it's the complete condemnation of, of violence with this pacifist idea that you can eliminate it. Yeah, no, that's so true. And the sad part of that uh, about that is if we look at some of the theories that have come out of academia from people who have no relationship to violence and have had no relationship to violence, some of those theories have now become public policy. And that public policy affects the people, unfortunately, it... Uh, the, the poorest uh, among us. And that's an, a good example is what we've seen happen. I mentioned the George Floyd thing when we started talking, but, you know, the people who were advocating for defunding the police in the United States weren't poor black working class people who live in those neighborhoods. When you poll those neighborhoods, it'll be 80 to 90% of the people in those neighborhoods want at least the same amount or more police presence in those neighborhoods because they have to live with it. The people who were pushing that it, innate stupid idea, inane stupid idea of defunding the police were wealthy, privileged, white liberals who don't live in those neighborhoods. And after they get away with getting some of those policies implemented like they have done here in Portland, guess who the majority of the victims are? It's not those wealthy white liberals. The majority of the victims, again, tend to be poor black Americans. And so it, it is super frustrating once you see this happen that the people who push for these really insane policies, one of the sad things about it is they're not the ones that have to pay the price for it usually. They're off they're off in their own, you know, protected neighborhood shopping at Whole Foods. They're not the ones whose child is going to get shot in a drive-by shooting. And so they don't actually see the result of what they're doing. They live they live in a fantasy world. And uh, that's very dangerous and sad as well. So Matt there are practical things in your book that we should all learn. And I don't want you to give away any of this because we want to get people to go out and buy the book and, and actually change their lives so that they can become uh, less afraid of, of going out and doing the things they want to do and living their lives. And, you know, whether you're a, a big, strong man or a, or a, or a much more uh, slight woman, you should be able to still do certain things to make sure that you're protected. And you said a lot of the book is focused on looking for those signs to avoid the violence and to preempt it before yeah. you need to get to that point. And maybe you can give us an example without giving too much away of what kinds of things are the giveaways when someone is behaving, you called it a character defect or something mm -hmm. just now. Mm -hmm. um, 
How do you spot those? Sure. Um, yeah, I'm not worried about giving anything away because my goal with writing this book was to get the information out there. So I have one acronym that I want people to remember. It's really the only acronym I use in the book, and that is MIND, M-A-I-N-D, M-I-N-D. Mm-hmm. And it covers everything I think somebody needs to know when it comes to violence. And the first part of that M is maturity. And like I talked about before, the majority of problematic violence we see in the world, in the United States and elsewhere, when it becomes individuals versus individuals, is related to issues of maturity. So where you see a lot of immaturity, where you see young males doing dumb and desperate things, that is your first indication that that's not where you want to spend your time. But if you're a mature person engaged in mature activities, doing mature things, immediately, you know, the the statistical likelihood of you becoming a victim of violent crime just goes down by 90%. And then the next part of that is intelligence, having the intelligence and understanding, which is partially understanding to listen to your primal instincts. And part of it is an educated awareness of what to look for. Uh, And you mentioned character disordered people. Character disordered people, you know, they're going to have a certain level of immaturity. There's going to be a failure to take personal responsibility. There's going to be excuse after excuse. One of the things, the reason why I use the term character disorder instead of sociopath or some of the other um, more medical terms for it is because when people keep repeating an error, it's not a mistake. It's a character flaw. And that's something that, you know, every battered wife and a, a person that deals with abuse tends to forget. They think that this person's going to change. They have all this laundry list of excuses for why they behave the way they did until finally it becomes too late and, you know, the damage is done. So maturity, intelligence, and is noticing, being able to notice what's around in your environment, things when things just don't look right, and not being afraid to listen to yourself when that happens. One of the dangerous things that happens is people will have those alarm bells go off inside them. And we all have those alarm bells. And there's nobody listening to this right now that doesn't have these instincts inside them already. You have it. But what happens is people will then start to rationalize that internal voice and they'll ignore it. Sometimes maybe people don't want to appear racist or people don't want to think human beings are like that. Or you want to be nice and you want to always assume the best of people. But when you find yourself rationalizing these feelings that you're having, that in and of itself should be a huge alarm bell because your instincts are usually right. There's a reason why, you know, they they evolved that way. So being able to notice those instincts and pay attention to them is so important. In every single case of violence, there is usually a chain of events leading up to it where the person, if you interview them carefully, this is the, the work of Gavin DeBecker, um, which is really important for people. He, he really um, brought this home, but there was a moment in that person's experience where all those alarm bells went off and they ignored it for whatever reason, sometimes quote unquote, noble reasons, not wanting to and be those, that person. Those alarm bells, correct me if I'm wrong, are, you know, these are thousands of years of yes. experience by, Millions. you know, it's, it's genetic memory. This is the kind of stuff that we have dealt with in every generation, perhaps before this one. Um, and if you're lucky enough in your life to have never had to serve in the military, to never have had to fight a war. I mean, I look at my father fought, uh, my grandfathers both did, all my great-grandfathers did, and so on, back as far as I can trace it. I'm probably the first member of my family in the male line who has not had to put on a uniform 
and go off to fight for something they either did or did not believe in and learn those lessons firsthand. But it's still in you. You know, when, when something's bubbling, you could see it, whether you're in a nightclub, whether you're in a, in a, a, a busy sort of street, if you're in a, a, a concert, you can tell when there's that, that smell, that kind of feel, that electricity in the air, that violence is about to break out. I think everybody, men and women are very, very capable of, of specifically picking that up. And if you ignore it, then usually you find yourself in the middle of it. Oh, that's exactly right. And it, it goes back millions of years. Um, mm-hmm. And sometimes the instincts of women are a little different from the instincts of men. So it's another thing to pay attention to. If you ha- if your wife or sister or female friend tells you she finds something creepy about a particular guy and maybe that, per- that male is not setting off your instincts, but they're setting off hers, there's probably a reason for that. You want to listen to that. Absolutely. So absolutely. Always listening to those, being being able to hear the signal of that and differentiate that signal from the noise around you is super important. So that's the end part, noticing. And then finally, we get to D, which is three things, decisiveness, determination, and distance management. So deterrent or deterrence, decisiveness, and distance management. So deterrence is something that the way you carry yourself, the way people see you, predators they have something they call a thin slicing where predators within a fraction of a second will make a determination about whether or not they think you're a good potential victim. And they've done studies on this where they've shown prisoners um, footage of just people walking from the uh, neck down, just people walking across a crosswalk. And they would say, okay, when you see one that you think, you know, that's the person I would attack, I would victimize. I want you to, to mark it. And, There'll be like 80, 90% of them will pick the same people. And it has to do with how people carry themselves, how they walk, what they're paying attention to. And so part of physical training, just being involved in a combat sport, is just that helps build that sense of self that's going to help take you off the, the shopping list of potential predators, that and being aware of your surroundings. So that's that natural deterrence. Um, determination, if it does become physical, I want you to fight and I want you to make sure you're the one that goes home to your family. So we talk a little bit about that, being able to draw that line in the sand. And then the last piece, and it's the very last piece, is distance management. And that's where we actually start talking about physical conflict. And every physical conflict, whether we're talking about a street fight or a war, whatever, when we're talking about violence, whoever controls the distance controls that altercation. And so when it comes to physical fighting, physical force, being able to control the distance, being able to control to close or extend the range of, of the altercation is really where it, what it all comes down to. And being able to control that distance physically against another human body is the piece where combat sports come in. But that, that is the long, that is a, there's a long list of things that lead up to that, that came before that. And part of what I wanted to do in the book is give people that information. You know, this is all really, really helpful. And, and I'm things like distance management is just such a big deal. And I, you know, you don't think about it until someone like you explains it. And, and then suddenly it all kind of makes sense. But, but there's obviously a lot that you'd have to go over once or twice in order to familiarize yourself. And then, as you said earlier, actually physically do it and, right. and learn. But right. when you, when you talk about, you know, the final steps when violence becomes inevitable, um, this is really where I suppose, a lot of people think that, well, you know, the, the rules are all thrown out. You just have to, you just have to lash out, kick, hit, do whatever you can, especially if you're not trained. No. And people often think that 
the dangerous people are the ones who are always on tenterhooks, are aggressive, are looking for trouble. But the most dangerous people are probably the calmest ones in a situation like that who only deploy that violence in very, very specific circumstances and in order to win. Well, that's right. Yeah. I mean, violence is always applied more effectively but when you're calm or as calm as can be. And the better somebody comes at violence, the calmer they're going to be operating in that environment. Well, when we start talking about the physical aspect of things, martial arts or fighting, one of the things I think, one of the, the myths that's out there that's, that's prevalent everywhere is that some martial arts are for street, quote unquote, some martial arts are for sport. And that implies that, for example, if you're dealing, I'll give you a, a situation, you get in a fight and somebody grabs your head and takes you down to the ground and they're holding you in a headlock, maybe punching you in the face. Any of us any, who was a kid that's gotten in a fight in school has probably experienced that. There is no special street headlock escape when you get in that situation. And if your only escape is, well, if in that kind of situation I'm going to bite them, the person's wearing a leather jacket, right? And plus, when it comes mm -hmm. to being able to defend yourself, the least reliable thing is physical pain. You know, police officers and uh, paramedics and everything, there's so many situations where you see somebody with a knife sticking out of their head or their ears missing, and they're still going strong because um, drugs or just because of adrenaline. So there is a physical way, best practice, for someone who's in that position being held down on the ground to use their body to control the other person's body and wind up escaping and coming out on top. That best way is well known. It's the same uh, in a tournament or on the mat or in MMA or in the parking lot. Now, the stakes change and some of the strategy and tactics we will use will change but the root skills of that physical delivery system, your body's ability to apply that against a bigger, stronger, more aggressive opponent doesn't change. And so people who spend their life doing combat sports, who every day, every week are practicing fighting against other people who also know how to fight, comparing that person to just the average street thug or somebody who's just violent and aggressive, there's really no comparison. You know what? Their ability to defend themselves against that untrained person is, is huge. And so the, the skills that you learn, whether it's in a boxing gym or doing judo or in Brazilian jiu-jitsu, those transcend environment. They'll work in, your, in a grappling match. They will work in the cage, and they will work in a parking lot if you wind up getting attacked. That's why it's so important, I think, for American police officers and police officers around the world to train in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. We've seen time and time again that if um, somebody has a couple of years, an officer has a couple of years of that kind of training, what we would call a blue belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu, they can handle themselves so much better than somebody that hasn't. And the likelihood of the force being escalated beyond what is necessary at the moment drops dramatically. And so it's good for the city. It's good for the person getting arrested. It's good for everybody. But this idea that uh, there's sport and then there's street is, is simply a fallacy. Um, if you can't beat us with rules, what makes you think you could beat us without them? Yeah, yeah that, I mean, this is all such, this is such priceless value. Um, you know, Matt, the, the, the problem is also for a lot of people, uh, they don't want to have guns and knives on them. Most people don't walk around armed to the teeth and ready to take on any kind of danger. And I think in modern society, we shouldn't have to. Um, I think if we live in a civilized place and, and we feel like we are um, among 
our, our, our community and we're safe in, in our community, it's probably something that most people don't really want to or have to think about. But the reality is that if you have some means, whether it's a learned skill uh, in, the, in the case of martial arts or whether it's a weapon, if that's something you also know how to handle properly, because there's no point in having a weapon if you don't know what to do with it or if you're unskilled in it. It's just as dangerous to you then as it is to anyone you use it against. Right. Um, what, what is your preference in terms of, you know, kind of what advice you might give to women in particular here? Let's say if, you know, if you're a young single woman, uh, would you advise that they should be thinking about having some kind of can of mace, a uh, knife, a knuckle duster, a gun, what kind of thing would you tell a young woman? And maybe this is something you would even tell, you know, your own daughter or someone like that. Yeah. Anytime I have a conversation with people like that, um, I want to sit down and just talk to them honestly and assess the situation. And, and you, you know, my advice will be dependent on the person and the circumstances and also where they live. So here in the United States, you know, we have more handguns in this country than we have people. Um, they're yeah. everywhere. And if tomorrow they pass a law that says nobody is allowed to have a handgun, the only people that are going to have handguns are going to be the bad guys. And so certain situations, um, I think carrying a firearm, especially here in the United States, is a good thing. But as you said, if you're going to carry that, you need to have training in it and be resp responsible, be able to hang on to it and, and understand how to use it and how to avoid situations where you'd have to all that stuff. So the training becomes very important. But then there's other situations where that's just not practical or as in your case where it's not legal. I told a story in the book one time. I had a, a young woman come in who was in a wheelchair. And when I started to talk to her, she told me these horrendous stories. Like she'd been attacked like in the last year or half a dozen times of people kind of pushing her over and trying to grope her, trying to rape her. And, you know, she first started to say it. And this was this was probably 10 years ago when Portland was an, actually a nice city. I was thinking to myself, boy, that's at first I was thinking that's just why would somebody get attacked that often? That's just not statistically the way our city works. And then I realized immediately it's because of who she is, because she's the perfect target. So there's there exists in our in our world a certain class of human being who when they see a woman in a wheelchair who's incapable of defending herself and, not, and nobody else around, is that, that's a magnet to them. They want to go and rape and torture that young lady. So she was, whether she wanted to be or not, she was a magnet for that kind of street trash. And so she needed an effective way to be able to defend herself. I had her get on the mat and move around so I could see how well she moved around. And she had some upper body strength and she could move a little bit. But realistically, it was going to be very hard for her to defend herself. She had trouble hanging on to things. And so in that case, uh, I'm not necessarily sure a gun or a knife would be a good situation for her. If she wanted to go with a gun, I, I would have said that's fine. But, you know, she was scared and, if, and didn't want to handle that. And she had, like I said, she had trouble gripping things sometimes. Uh, pepper mace. Well, you know, she's in a wheelchair and she's going to get caught in that cloud of pepper mace and not be able to get away the, the way the rest of us would. So for her, my advice was get a big dog, get yourself a dog that can go with you everywhere. And that number one is going to act as what a deterrence to those kind of, those kind of people. They're not going to want to get around a dog. Most of them are cowards anyway. And that was probably her best chance of being able to protect herself. But like I said, it really depends on the individual, what they feel comfortable carrying, even if just carrying a knife, you know, 
like you said, that can also be used against you. So if you're going to carry a knife, you want to have training in it. You want to be able to hang on to it. You want to understand when you should and should not deploy it. Um, so I would say case by case basis, depending on the laws in your area and how comfortable you are. But, you know, I am all for people, good people being able to defend themselves. So I, I don't want to take away anybody's right to do it anywhere. Matt, I'm so glad you've written this book. I think it's going to be a, a huge hit here in South Africa, and I certainly hope that it permeates into all parts of society, um, and most especially those parts where people are extremely vulnerable and where they often feel powerless because, as you've just explained with this, this poor woman in a wheelchair who's found herself the victim of so much violence and crime, even in her situation, there are answers that can be found and there are things that can be done. Uh, the book is is bound to be interesting to anybody and everybody. It is called the Gift of Violence, Practical Knowledge for Surviving and Thriving in a Dangerous World. And the author, Matt Thornton, is our guest today. Matt, it's a great pleasure to have you with us, and thank you for your time. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it.